If you're a regular listener to the Van City podcast and believe in what the church is doing, consider supporting Van City financially. Full disclosure, our church is small and in the throes of an ongoing struggle to make budget and to grow in the spiritual discipline of generosity. If you want to help out, visit vancity.church give. I'm Josh Porter, and this is the Van City Church Podcast. The following teaching is the final entry in our series, The True and False Self, Filled with All the Fullness of God. The journey toward the true self is just that, a journey, like discipleship itself. And like discipleship, this journey has a destination. A few of us were sitting on her back porch when Grandma, Grandma Frida, she's called, told Abby and me a story. She had recently been to a funeral, Grandma Frida, and it had been a lovely service, she said. Afterward, she and a friend made their way to the church fellowship hall. They had lunch and refreshments, and they caught up together. And two days later, Grandma's friend died as well. And it had really shaken her up. This friend of Grandma's, she'd mentioned that she was tired, apparently. She went to take a nap, and she never woke up. It did a number on me. That's what Grandma Frida said. And we just shook our heads and said, wow. And then later that evening, Abby mentioned to me that it must be strange being in a season of life watching your peers die like Grandma is doing. And we wondered if it made her consider her own mortality in a unique way. You don't have to be old to die, of course, but age often makes human beings consider the dwindling timeline of their own finite stories. Even so, Grandma Frida has somehow beat the odds. She is an anomaly, and I don't mean anything to do with her age. I mean that she has survived the many years of her life with a tender heart. Unlike many of her peers, she is not caustic, she is not embittered, She's not paranoid or mean-spirited or petty or obsessive. She doesn't stare out the windows assessing the neighbors. She isn't glued to the hyper-hysteria political porn of the for-profit 24-hour news cycle. She doesn't follow conspiracies. She hasn't cut ties with the people who have wronged her. She doesn't refuse to speak to someone against whom she's nursed a years-long grudge. Instead, she's very kind, and she's humble, and she's gentle, and she's peaceful and forgiving, And Abby and I agreed that if we make it to Grandma Frida's age with a similar disposition, and if we died one afternoon during a nap, that's about as good as anyone can go. And we're all going. But not all of us die with a tender heart. Open your Bibles to Luke chapter 24. Luke chapter 24. Tonight we are concluding our months-long series the true and false self. Week after week, we have been learning that in order to one day operate in the true freedom and beauty of mature, secure discipleship to Jesus, we have to somehow move beyond reading things about God's love in the Bible, intellectually believing them to be true, to actually believing and trusting deep down in the depths of our soul that they are actually true, that we really are God's beloved daughters and sons. This is not a trick. There are no caveats, no footnotes to explain away or qualify God's love, but that you, right now, with all your brokenness and bents, any secrets, any trauma, any sin, you are yet the object 
of God's affection, unchanging always and forever. The Sunday school platitudes, it turns out, are all true. It has always been about love, before, during, and after this harrowing roller coaster of life, with all its agony and ecstasy and faith and doubt, the simple, unchanging truth has always been that God loves us. But what does love mean? As June concludes, a month when innumerable storefronts and corporations roll out rainbow placards and tweets promising love is love, The idea is further obscured by a fog of derision and interpretation. Is love an expression of sexuality? Is love romance? Is love a positive feeling about a person or thing? I love my wife. This is true. I also love Godzilla. The Bible has its own very specific paradigm for this divisive idea that we call love. Whatever it is, it seems to be the highest aspiration of anyone who would follow Jesus. When asked about the greatest commandment in all of the Scriptures, Jesus replied simply, what? Anyone? That's right. Love God, love your neighbor as yourself. Good job. VBS, that's VBS level education, (laughs) theological education right here. Uh, Later on in the story, one of Jesus' apprentices and close friends would write in the New Testament, Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God, because God is what? Love. Knowing God at all is contingent on the baseline of love. Following Jesus, we often say, is not a static position. It's not a box one checks on a religious survey. It's not a set of intellectual beliefs only. It is the lifelong journey of apprenticing a master, becoming more like him in the training in order to eventually take up his work in our own lives, in our own little corners of the world. The journey of discipleship is going somewhere, and that somewhere is love. The authors of the New Testament often speak to our journey of following Jesus in terms of stages. We are at one point in the spiritual journey like newborns, and then we're something like infants, and then like toddlers and small children, adolescents, and so on. And like our journey from infancy to adulthood, the transition and evolution from one stage to another is complicated and imperfect. We may be children who in some ways behave with maturity beyond our years, or we may be adults who in some ways behave like children. But in theory, we are growing, we are changing. It isn't a simple or entirely linear journey, but down throughout church history, all sorts of writers and thinkers have worked with this idea of something called stage theory. The whole point being that if you have an idea of where you are, you stand to be better equipped for the stage of that journey. Ruth Haley Barton says it well. She says, the classic stages of the spiritual journey are an attempt to describe the different movements we experience along the way. We all experience these stages, whether we know how to name them or not. The beauty of knowing about the spiritual stages is that whatever we are experiencing, we can know others have gone before. And it helps us to know what to expect and what is needed on the journey. And the goal of all of it, as Jesus put it, as John put so beautifully, is love. Not as defined by a bumper sticker or a political agenda or by the transient whims of people, 
at all, but as defined by King Jesus. Love as the deliberate, active decision of the will and discipline to value another and their own good above yourself, stranger or neighbor, friend or enemy. So to unpack this a bit, let's read a love story. Would you guys stand with me as a gesture of reverence for the reading of Scripture? Look down at the Gospel of Luke chapter 24, and let's read beginning with verse 13. Now this story takes place just days after Jesus has been executed by the state. Now that same day, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. They were talking with each other about everything that had happened. As they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked along with them, but they were kept from recognizing him. He asked them, what are you discussing together as you walk along? They stood still, their faces downcast. Verse 18, one of them named Cleopas asked him, are you the only one visiting Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened in these days? What things? He asked. About Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. But we, listen, we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. And what's more, it's the third day since all this took place. In addition, some of our women amazed us. They went to the tomb early this morning and they didn't find his body. They came and told us they'd seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Then some of the companions went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but they did not see Jesus. He said to them, how foolish you are. And how slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. As they approached the village to which they were going, Jesus continued on as if he were going farther. But they urged him strongly, stay with us. It's nearly evening. The day's almost over. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at the table with them, he took bread, gave thanks, broke it, and began to give it to them. Then... Their eyes were opened and they recognized him and he disappeared from their sight. They asked each other, were not our hearts burning within us while he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us? They got up and returned at once to Jerusalem where they found the eleven and those with them assembled together and saying, it is true, the Lord has risen and has appeared to Simon. Then the two told what had happened on the way and how Jesus was recognized by them when he broke the bread. These words are inspired by God. Go ahead and take a seat. Now, there are some key elements in this story that sound pretty familiar to the modern sensibility. For starters, in this story with these disciples, their faith in Jesus is over. At this point, all hope has been lost. Think of that sad, dejected line in verse 21. They crucified him, but we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. The hope is over. They're sad. The text even says that when Jesus asked what they're talking about, that they stood still, their faces downcast. So at this point in the story, confusion reigns. There's despair. What are we doing? What are we supposed to believe now? This reminds me of the common American millennial narrative of bailing out on Jesus. In his epic poem, The Divine Comedy, Dante is led by Virgil to the gates of hell, where Dante is troubled by the gate's inscriptions, through me, pass into the painful city, through me, pass into eternal grief, through me, pass among the lost people, all hope abandon you who enter here. 
In one cultural narrative, this is the banner that hangs over life in the modern world, and the aimlessness of the neo-agnostic is glamorized. Thank goodness we got out. Isn't it so liberating to believe in nothing or everything or something I made up? And a kind of melancholy hangs in the air, sadness, confusion, aimlessness. This is the story of that road to Emmaus, the story that we know well, if not personally, then peripherally. And if Jesus was dead, that story makes perfect sense. Why would we have faith? Why would we continue to walk the narrow road of discipleship? The New Testament itself argues that if Jesus stayed dead, then discipleship is a sham. Were I not a disciple of Jesus, I would be an easy and convinced nihilist. This is pointless, meaningless. Human purpose, our potential and goodness, the, the promise of utopia, it's all a sham. But if that tomb was indeed empty, if Jesus is indeed alive, if the resurrection is true, then everything Jesus said was true, His validation of God, the goodness of God, the incomprehensible and relentless love of God, it's all true. And that changes everything. Death, then, is not the inevitable final statement on the randomness of the universe. Death is an intruder, an enemy in the world of God who is love. We are not headed to entropy and death as a final destination, but we are en route to its undoing, to justice and goodness for all of creation by passing through death like Jesus and into victory. And that is very good news. That is gospel. If that's true, then life is meaningful, not meaningless. We are sons and daughters, not just atoms and animals. We were made from love and for love, not from nothing and for nothing at all. Suffering and death are robbed of their ultimate power and imbued with a new purpose, meaning God's design and will is not for suffering and death. He doesn't ordain or predetermine or cause suffering or death, but He walks with us in pain and He uses it to mature and grow us, subverting that which He did not cause. He brings intimacy out of agony. God, like any good friend or any good father, comes to hold us in pain, and as He walks us through the fire, we grow, we know Him better, and we love Him more. Life has meaning. Suffering is subverted by that meaning. And there is hope for the future. The story is actually going somewhere, a story that began in a garden, reached an apex moment in the life, death, and resurrection of a peasant Jewish rabbi from the ancient Near East, and we live in the wake of that story, en route to its triumphant conclusion. The end of the story is love. The kingdom of God, as Jesus called it, is both now and it's not yet. It's here, it's inaugurated, it's breaking in, but it has yet to be realized in full. And so we wait. And as we wait, we walk. We walk the narrow road of discipleship. It's not pointless. It's not without meaning or purpose. We are going somewhere, and the somewhere we are going is love. In the story we read tonight, the hope the disciples held for Jesus was that He would be Israel's king, and He was. But in a beautiful bit of romantic storytelling, the narrative of a few apprentices following their teacher becomes something much bigger and different 
than just the hope for a new king, something more than the crowns of kings and the kingdoms that rise and fall like grass. The story is about something deeper, more profound, more powerful, because it is a story about love. These young, often bumbling disciples of Jesus were called under the lordship of Jesus under the pretense of something bigger than his claims to be Israel's kings. He did, and he is, but it's also about love. In this story, after having returned from the dead, Jesus, if you know how the story goes, sits on the beach with his friend and apprentice Peter, and he asks Peter several times, not, do you believe that I am the king, though that question is relevant. Instead, he asks Peter what? Do you love me? We have been called to love by the one who loves. Again, from 1 John, we love because He first loved us. God is the origin of love, the source of all actual love, not an ambiguous, open-ended, defined-it-how-you-will kind of love for bumper stickers and political causes, but love as it originates from God, is defined by God, finds its sole purpose in God. Your apprenticeship to Jesus is about this love. The end goal of apprenticing Jesus is to reach a kind of disposition out of which you operate by default. And that disposition is of God's love because you are the object of God's love. And then there's no anxiety or existential dread about who you are or where all of this is headed because all of life becomes suffused with the great unshakable majesty of God's all-consuming love in which you live and think and act from the default setting of Jesus' love for you and for everyone else and for all of creation. And no, you won't be perfect. You'll still make mistakes. But the mistakes are not your baseline disposition. Love is. The meaning that all human beings crave is love. This life pursuit, the quest to know and be known by love is sometimes compacted into a single word, for better or for worse, and that word is faith. So people describe discipleship as, oh, that's my faith, my faith in Jesus. What's your faith? The belief system of someone else is their faith. Faith is, for many, a uh, religious kind of word, but really faith is an entirely human concept. Humans can't live or function without faith in something. At the most base level, things like sunrise and sunset or, you know, the rotation of the sun, oxygen, gravity, that kind of thing, or things we take for granted like the plane will land, a friend will show up, we will wake up in the morning. The thing is, not everything in which we have faith also has meaning. Gravity may seem a faithful attribute of our day-to-day lives, but it doesn't offer any meaning to existence. And we, as humans, are wired to search for meaning. Neurobiologists argue that the human brain can't help but reach for meaning, for coherence, for something in all of this. Whether you imagine yourself religious or not, your brain, like all brains, is looking for doctrine, for faith, for belief, for the great why behind all of this. So whether one follows Jesus, has a religious or spiritual worldview, or is entirely naturalistic or nihilistic in their thinking, they all live into some kind of meaning, good or bad. 
in order to study or shop or travel or educate or have sex or work or have a family or broadcast life on social media to rally for a cause or a politician or a nonprofit or a business, whatever, to be a humanitarian or an ecologist or a feminist or an anarchist. And these things, some good, some bad, they won't in and of themselves grow us in union and love with God. Bernard of Clairvaux was a French abbot who believed the spiritual journey featured four stages of love. He said that it begins with love of self, the immature love. With this kind of love, we all begin. But then comes the love of God for the self. This is when we learn to love God, but what we love about God is what's in it for us the spiritual or emotional validation, the blessing, the reward, the security, salvation, heaven, peace, whatever. And that's not all bad. This love is not a bad thing, and it just simply won't measure up because God is so counterintuitive. He defies our small, simplistic aspirations for comfort and contentment and even the afterlife. And eventually, we realize, often with much difficulty, that God turns out to be bigger and better than our small love could contain. So we move on to the love of God for God. That this is, the abbot wrote, unselfish love. We're learning to love God as a person, not a human, but a person. We love His company. We love His personality. We love God because of who God is, not just for what He does for us or what He has done for us. Love becomes active rather than simply reactive. We want God, not for a reward or a high, but because He's God. He is lovely, so we love Him. But that is not the end of the journey. After this, we will finally take up the love of self for God. Bernard called this perfect love because in this stage, our love has been so nourished and nurtured in God, so filled by Him that it spills out onto the world, ourselves, other people, creation itself, friends, enemies, everyone. God's love in and over us has overflowed from the simple vessels of gratitude and admiration to a multi-surface prism that absorbs and then reflects the eternal outpouring of love in all directions. Our love for God is so great and so effortless that we love as He loves. Like Jesus said, with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and our neighbor as ourself. I think again of John who wrote of being made perfect in love. Another way of translating that could be made complete or mature in love. Now, finally, operating in the freedom of the true self, filled with all the fullness of God. To end tonight, think of your discipleship, new or old, developed or non-existent, as beginning on that road to Emmaus. At one point, hope seems at best elusive and at worst, non-existent. We had hoped that Jesus would be who He said He was. Think of what often feels like an overwhelming cultural narrative 
of abandoning discipleship rather than persevering in it, which honestly makes a lot of sense. Giving up on Jesus is really easy. Sticking with Him is really hard. He was very clear about that. Giving up on the way of Jesus, the community of the church, on orthodoxy, that is certainly the easiest way, the safe and comfortable way at a superficial level. Following the true historic movement of Jesus through the fire, that is very challenging. That's brave. Living in the messy imperfection of community with other people trying to do the same thing, that is very brave and very tough. But if that tomb is empty, we are going somewhere, and it's not for nothing. Love is the end of the story, and it isn't open for broad interpretation. God Himself has defined love with overwhelming, incredible clarity, and that clarity's name is Jesus, the one who gives Himself up for others in radical, self-sacrificial love. This is why we live our entire lives into apprenticeship, to be with Jesus so that we can become like Jesus in order to eventually take up the things that Jesus did in the world and our little corners of the world and the responsibilities He has given us in them. So ask yourself tonight, where am I headed in the journey toward love? Is it immature or is it unselfish love into which I live and think, and operate every day? Am I self-preserving? Do I know how to love God for who He is yet, or just for what He does for me? When would I arrive in mature love? In what ways have I glimpsed mature love in my own life? Has it been in seasons of suffering or moments of closeness? Because Remember, the journey isn't as linear as some of us hope it might be. In fact, glimpses of the destination break into the journey along the way. A moment of incredible, vivid union with God or a season of advanced maturity in which God grows and stretches you into someone of radical self-sacrificial love, even though there are aspects of your life that have yet to be dragged into the refining fire of God's love. Each of us is up against our own unique wirings and dispositions and brokenness and shortcomings and defects as we make the journey. The ways in which one person loves effortlessly may seem to you an insurmountable obstacle in the road and vice versa, but we're all being drawn in the same direction toward love. And as we go, more and more of who we are become submitted to, the Je- submitted to Jesus, and more and more of who we are, the private things, the secret things, the immature things are brought into the refining fire of His love. It's not bad to be at the beginning. It's not bad to be at the middle, and it's certainly not bad to be at the end. All of it is following Jesus, and all of it means we're going somewhere. So the question to ask again and again and again in each season and stage of your life long before you've reached the twilight years of your life is, do I have a warm, forgiving heart? Am I open and peaceful? Are there signs of bitterness creeping in, seeds being planted? Is there anger? Does my heart go cold? Because Listen, it seems evident from experience and from philosophy that this will become more difficult, not less, the older we get. Ronald Rollheiser argued that the goal of discipleship to Jesus is to die with a warm, forgiving heart. 
But theologians argue, and I agree, that libertarian freedom becomes compatibilist freedom more and more over time, which is just a wordy way of saying that on the timeline of your life, early on, you have the free will to always do other than you do. But the more choices that you make, for better or for worse, the more you are becoming solidified in those choices and the more narrow your spectrum of freedom becomes. The older you get, the harder it becomes to do other than you do. Again, this from Rollheiser. As we age, we can begin to trim down our spiritual vocabulary and eventually we get it down to three words, forgive, forgive, forgive. The major task psychological and spiritual, for the second half of our lives is to forgive. We need to forgive those who have hurt us, forgive ourselves for our own failings, forgive life for not being fully fair, and even forgive God for seemingly being so indifferent to our wounds. We need to do that before we die because ultimately there is only one moral imperative, not to die an angry, bitter person, but to die with a warm heart. Think for a moment about people that you've known in your life who are older, who have gotten toward the end of their lives. Doesn't it seem that many of them fit neatly into one of two categories? They're either bitter and petty and cantankerous and mean-spirited, up in arms about small, trivial things, or else they are warm and kind and generous and gentle. We are being solidified in the decisions that we make At one point in my life, I was not a dad, and then one day, I was. You go from zero experience to just a little, and then more, and ideally, you grow in wisdom and maturity and in love. And one night, recently, as I prayed, I asked uh, God, as I was praying with my children, show me how to love my kids more every day, every, you know, night before bed, we all pray together. And uh, laughing, my son Beck said, you already love us with your whole heart. He wasn't saying that because I'm so good at demonstrating it. That's just something that I actually say all the time. I say, oh man, I love you guys with my whole heart. But I told him, well, that's true, but (laughs) I want to learn how to love more. And then I took him through examples. He's like, "What, what does that mean? I said, well, don't I lose my patience sometimes or don't I raise my voice, not, not always in healthy, controlled discipline, but in petty frustration, or don't I get distracted, or don't I have to tell you that I'm sorry on a regular basis? And no, I will never eclipse my potential to make mistakes, but if I learn how to love more, won't my life be like a branch growing from the vine of Jesus, filled with and overflowing with the love of God more and more every new season of my life. And if I learn to love more, won't my life readily and regularly grow the fruit of joy and peace and patience and kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control? We don't expect a new parent to walk in the ways of perfect love the moment they leave the hospital with a newborn in tow. This is a journey, and you're on it, and there are stages, and you're in one right now. But as you walk, You can choose to learn to walk in the ways of love. What part of you is being changed in this season of your life by the love of God? Look back over your story, the last few months, the last couple of years, this last long season of your life. Is it the way that you talk to other people or the compassion that you have for them? Is it your hope for the future? Is it your resilience in suffering? Are you becoming more and more willing to forgive and to reconcile 
than you once were? Or is that staying the same? Are you becoming less willing to forgive? If so, what does that mean? What part of you, which secret parts of you have yet to be brought into the refining fire of God's love? What part of you is yet to be reshaped by the love of God? Is it your contentment or lack thereof, anxiety, temperament? Is it your ambition? And can you look at these different aspects of who you are over the last few years and can you say that these things have changed over the course of your discipleship to Jesus, over the last five or ten years, over the last year? I've been thinking a lot this week about a prayer that Ronald Rohlheiser mentions early on in his book, Sacred Fire. The prayer is taken from the writings of Nikos Kazantzakis, who mused that there were perhaps three different types of souls, and they could be summarized by these three prayers. The first is, I am a bow in your hands, Lord, draw me, lest I rot. The second is, do not overdraw me, Lord, I shall break. And the third is, overdraw me, Lord, who cares if I break? Rollheiser argues that perhaps these prayers coincide with stages of the discipleship journey. The first part of discipleship, he believes, is essential discipleship. That's the struggle to get our lives together, which gives way to mature discipleship, the struggle to give our lives away, which finally concludes in radical discipleship, the struggle to give our deaths away. Whether early or late stage, whether bare essentials or radical, all of that is discipleship to Jesus. And in each of these stages, you follow Jesus. You learn to walk in the ways of love within the context of each stage. Our newborns love us by needing us for survival. You know, we make little quips. It's like, oh, he loves mommy. It's like, well, no, he's, you know, she keeps him alive, so... Our small children draw us pictures and say sweet, unpretentious things about us. And as adults, we learn to love one another with personal sacrifice. We move beyond just what we get from another person, what we can give to them for our own validation. But because we have learned to give love away, regardless of what it means for us, even prioritizing it over our own well-being, each stage has methods of love, but we don't fault the newborn or the toddler for not loving like an adult yet. We do expect them to grow. If you follow Jesus, you are in a stage of your discipleship journey. Maybe it's the bare essentials. Maybe it's mature. Maybe it's even radical. What does it mean for you to know and walk in the ways of love in your stage of the journey? Because that's where all of this is headed. The end of the story is love and being filled with all the fullness of God, finally set free to be who you have always been, who you really are, and who you will be, the beloved daughters and sons of God. Let's pray together and ask God's Spirit to speak over us. Thanks for listening to Van City. You can connect with us and find more teachings and available resources at www.vancity.church. You can support Vancity financially at vancity.church/give.